Welcome to CEC Explains, your deep dive into fascinating subjects from the worlds of engineering and the environment, brought to you by civil and environmental consultants. And now from our CEC studios around the nation, this is CEC Explains. Hi, I'm Rob Livermore. I'm a principal with Civil Environmental Consultants in the Phoenix, Arizona office. I serve as a corporate leader of the Mining Market Group. I have over 35 years experience throughout the mine life cycle, focusing on environmental compliance and risk reduction strategies in the U.S. and Canada, as well as some regional experience in Europe, Africa, Indonesia, and Latin America. I'd like to introduce you to Brad Renwick, out of our Chicago, Illinois office, who has over 15 years experience in the mining and environmental industries. He's been the lead geologist on several large investigations for new mines or expansions to existing facilities. He has considerable experience with identification of new mineral sources for aggregate clients and has run drilling programs to delineate the source and provide an estimation of reserves available for mining. And he will be talking about things to consider when developing or expanding a new mine. Thanks, Rob. As uh, Rob mentioned, I'm uh, Brad Renwick. I'm a uh, geologist and senior project manager here at the Chicago office. And yeah, I've uh, been in the industry uh, for the better part of 15 years. Um, I have worked the, the majority of those years in the mining and or solid waste industry, uh, either consulting um, as a hydrogeologist for some feasibility studies, groundwater modeling, reserve investigations. I also would, had a brief stint for about three and a half years where I worked as a uh, field geologist for an exploration drilling company here around the Chicago uh, market, which uh, when I was able to come back to CEC, it uh, helped improve that base. Uh, and um, yeah, I, I've had uh, considerable experience, as Rob mentioned, with finding new lands, uh, investigating new lands and uh, helping uh, clients figure out things. And and that's what, what we're going to talk about today is uh, some of the things I've come across in my career and uh, starting mine, things to look for from uh, kind of start to finish, really, I, I've done a lot of expansion and, and also greenfield work. And um, yeah, some of the things that I've uh, seen early on are, you know, what are the uh, minerals we're going after? Is it construction aggregate? Is it a, a sole source for a pharmaceutical grade uh, high cal limestone or, or cement limestone? Uh, I've also done um, quite a bit of uh, investigation work for uh, silica sands when the uh, Oil and gas markets were really up and everybody was looking for, for silica sands, identifying properties and, and uh, things to look for there. So, Brad, how, how do you go about uh, sort of developing or expanding a new mine? Well, number one, what are we looking for? Um, is, is it uh, just purely construction aggregate or like I said, you know, are we looking for a particular uh, chem quality stone? And what are the, uh, the client's limitations? Where is the reserve? Do they have? certain um, logistical constraints that they're working with as far as railroads or, or barges. Things we've, we've talked about in the past are uh, logistics are the biggest constraint. Really can't uh, develop a mine unless you can get the product to the market. You could have a, a very vast reserve out in the middle of nowhere, but it, uh, it does nobody any good unless it makes sense uh, from a financial standpoint to get that product to the market it needs to serve. With a new infrastructure bill, I'm sure a lot of people are looking to expand. So so what are some of the, the obstacles that people should look out for when they're trying to develop or expand a new mine? Well, you brought up uh, one of the biggest ones too. What is the uh, political environment, a new infrastructure bill? There's uh, still some question as to, uh, you know, 
if it will pass, what size it will be and, and who it's going to serve. Uh, and also locally, uh, what is the political uh, or socioeconomic climate in the area you want to expand or, or build this mine? Um, some of those can be pretty big. If and when the new infrastructure bill passes, um, it will create that, that need for uh, aggregate to, to get to the market based on the, uh, the needs of the construction, what it's going to serve, what infrastructure is already there to get those, uh, those products to the market. What's the expected life of the mine? Things like that. So with the new Biden administration being tougher on environmental justice and getting more tribal input, do you see those as requiring more upfront or due diligence when you're looking at a new mine or a location or you know, especially with the WOTUS rules might be being rolled back as far as wetlands and so location and uh, public input is probably going to be a, a bigger issue moving forward? That, uh, from what I've seen here, will will be a big driver. Um, many times, at least for the markets I've served, a, lo- a lot of the mines are out in uh, more rural areas, but uh, there are a lot of producers out there with not mines, but also uh, ancillary support services, whether it be a rail yard, that are in um what might be considered more environmental justice areas. And that just kind of goes to working with the client to, uh, they always want to be a good neighbor. Um, and what sort of uh, products or improvements can you provide for the communities in which you're going to operate, whether that's uh, new parks, more monitoring. Uh, I know uh, air monitoring will be a, is going to be a big one around the perimeter to, uh, like I said, make sure they are going to be a, a good neighbor. I know um, there's going to be, probably more enforcement of PM10 monitoring around a lot of uh, mine perimeters, uh, dependent on the, on the community they're in. And that, uh, you bring up a good point about the, the engagement of that community in which you want to operate uh, early on in the process. Going back a little bit, uh, more of a 10,000-foot of a view or a 30,000-foot view, I should say. Where does the reserve sit? What's the geologic structure? Uh, does it make sense? And once you've honed, once they've honed in on a uh, a certain area or uh, e- even a particular parcel of land, really engaging the uh, the community at the forefront to work with them so that, you know, they, they want you there. The clients can provide jobs and um, hopefully some some infrastructure on that end. So that, that's a good thing to, uh, to bring up, in, in, you know, staying active in the communities in which you operate. Well, I've always heard the rule of thumb, especially in aggregates, is you want to have a source within a, a 50 mile radius because I think uh, transportation is one of the highest costs when you're opening up a new mine. And so, yeah, I can see that, you know, getting some um, people's buy in, especially you're going to be local to a community is pretty important. And now with the uh, environmental justice, you want to make sure that you are going to be in a area of disadvantaged uh, groups to you know, talk to them early on and possibly offer training or job experience in order to help uh, those types of communities out. So what what other type of permits, um, after you've sort of found your source, your location, um, what kind of permits would a typical sort of mine be looking at? Well, depending on their operation, if they're going to be washing a lot of aggregate and or sand and gravel, silica sand even, um, are they going to be a high-end user of a lot of water? Uh, are they going to? They may need a uh, a high water usage permit. Um, what are they going to do with this water afterward? They're probably likely need a an NPDES water permit to uh, to discharge the waters of the state. Um, 
if they're going to have a substantial crushing, what sort of air permits would they need to get their plants up and running? Um, some uh, states are relatively simple, depending on the operation. Others can go all the way up to a, a Title V uh, air permit. It, it all kind of depends on what the client's needs are from the, from the get-go, how much they want to produce uh, annually or even weekly to see what kind of air permits they would need. Um, and it, it differs from state to state, but typically it's uh, any sort of mine permit would uh, would go through the Department of Natural Resources, um, Bureau of Land. I, I, I'm not sure how it works out west, but uh, here in Illinois, we always go through the uh, Department of Natural Resources for both their mine operating permit, depending on how much their land they're going to affect each year, and also goes to their bonding requirements to uh, uh, which are also tied to their reclamation plan. How are they going to return the land back to some sort of former use after the mine is uh, is depleted or as areas of the mine are depleted? How are they going to uh, return that uh, land back to a use that uh, can be used by the public, whether that's industrial uh, development or uh, recreational parks, things like that, state parks? Yeah, it's interesting. I know out here in uh, Arizona, we have more public lands than usually other states, and sometimes they'll want access agreements. And the interesting thing out here is once you sort of define your resource, you have to negotiate a royalty with the state of Arizona. If it's on state of Arizona land, they'll uh, take a royalty for the materials that you've removed, which is kind of an interesting thought. So part of that, when you're doing sort of your initial feasibility, you know, what, what are some of the sort of the fatal flaws that you've seen in your experience, you know, when you're, you know, going through sort of this initial feasibility study? Um, existing infrastructure, uh, whether it be a something that can be seen quite easily as a, uh, a highway or a, even a road. Um, other times, natural gas pipelines, anything, any uh, Fiber optics that may be crossing the land, uh, you may have to engage those uh, those operators early on in the process, uh, even before you go out there and start drilling. And th- some of those can be identified uh, from aerial photographs, differences in uh, drainage patterns, things like that. Um, any uh, anecdotal evidence of threatened and endangered species. Um, I know of a, of a couple projects here in Illinois that were stalled. Uh, one was a highway project. The other was actually a mine project that were uh, stalled for uh, the better part of 15 to 20 years until they uh, figured out what they were going to do with either a, a small, uh, I think it was a uh, dragonfly and the other site was a, a small frog. So those are things that, uh, you know, albeit small, you want to take note of because they can, uh, if you don't identify them early on, they could uh, really become a real sticky wicket later in the in the process. Yeah, I've heard that. I know our Indianapolis office uh, did a study where they, they knew there was four or five cultural sites, but they actually ended up identifying about 12. And so those sites had to be set aside. They couldn't utilize that in their plan. So I thought that was kind of interesting that you kind of think you're going in with a certain idea and then you start finding wetlands or threatened endangered species or cultural historic sites uh, that sort of impede the development that you originally thought of. And you bring up a good point. That's uh, early on. It's very good to educate or at least work with the client, uh, work with any, any operator to educate them in, in kind of what we know, because I have seen producers in the past or, uh, even other industrial clients that may not uh, even think to uh, worry about something as small as a dragonfly, but the front end work, just identifying those and, and engaging 
the agency early on, whether it be the DNR or uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, early on in the process um, is, from my experience, a lot less costly than you know having to deal with it on the back end. How about like, um, I'm sure when you're doing some of your studies, if you have a large overburden, that probably affects the economics because you're having to remove a lot more topsoil than maybe you anticipated. Um, absolutely. And it, it's uh, going to the uh, the actual geology, the reserve uh, may be there in its uh, form, but how to get to it. Uh, what what are your stripping ratios going to be? Does the uh, does the producer or the uh, whoever you're working with, do they have a top end? Um, and even before you go out drilling, um, may be able to do some uh, relatively simple geophysics to identify, A, how thick that overburden is, or any uh, anomalies that you uh, may uncover in, in those geophysics, whether it's uh, some karst terrain, uh, paleo karst that has been filled in uh, with clay. You're definitely going to have to go out and, and ground truth that with a... Uh, an extensive drilling program, but once again, it's uh, those those steps you need to take to uh, to identify a what the reserve is and how it's structured. I actually had experience um, with a project uh, a while back where the uh, the infrastructure and the need were there. Uh, there was a uh, some infrastructure that was supposed to go in, and they had done uh, a lot of ground research and acquired the land. And the, the geologic structure was identified and there were some things that were identified in the geophysics and the drilling program that would have made mining this very difficult, but still feasible because the, uh, the need for that was very close to the source. Things changed on the political climate and that infrastructure ended up not being constructed. And it, it really changed the financials of how they were going to mine that. And to this day, I believe it's uh, it's that land is still sitting idle. So um, just going back to your point about what are some, other than just getting the reserve and extracting it, what are the obstacles to get to it, to uncover that over, overburden and where are you going to put it? What are your constraints? And what it kind of goes also back into the operating plan of the mine. Where's your overburden going to go? Where's your material handling process plant going to be? Things like that. What's sort of the general rule of thumb when you're developing a drilling program, let's say for a 50-acre site? I mean, do you put, uh, you know, in our business, I know, you know, the more information, the better, but of course that costs the client more. So what's sort of the minimum boring per acre that that you've seen that gives you enough information in order to, you know, make a mine an economic resource? Well, speaking as a geologist and not an engineer, not being able to give you a, a a hard and fast answer. My rule of thumb um, when I'm working with a client to develop a drilling program obviously depends on on your uh, the mineral you're going for. If it's uh, construction aggregate, limestone, dolomite, bedrock, I typically go with about uh, one hole per 40 acres. If it is a more, uh, if it's a Santa Grava reserve that has more potential to be a lot more heterogeneous and different throughout, I guess. Then that kind of, that uh, number shrinks down to about one hole per ten acres. And does the geophysics help you determine sort of your drilling program, or do you try to use those in concert, or do you sometimes not use geophysics? Sometimes I've not. You know, I haven't used geophysics um, many times. If it's a if it's a new uh, terrain or region, or if there's reason to suspect there there might be uh, some problems, such as a uh, a fault that people know of locally, but they haven't really identified it. 
geophysics is a good tool because you can go out there and collect a, a lot of information uh, across a, a vast amount in a relatively short period of time. Um, and then ground truth that and using that geophysics will help you develop that drilling program moving forward. And, you know, also staying in tune with the, the fact that you have a plan, but that plan could change um, as you get out there in the field and, and start collecting that information. So geophysics might help in an area that you don't know as well, or the client doesn't know as well, or maybe a whole new greenfield site that they have no experience to give them an idea of what the material is that they might be mining. Uh, correct. And it will also give you some insight into the, uh, the hydrogeology of the, of the area as well. And the hydrogeologic study also goes into a part of the drilling program. You, you want to collect as much data out there as you can. And um, that's kind of one thing we haven't touched on is, uh, you know, the, some sort of basic hydrogeologic investigation as to how, when you open up this pit, either through time or at its life's end, how are you going to affect not only the, the local aquifer system, but also how much water are you going to draw into the mine? What are your water handling expectations, uh, as well as how are you going to uh, treat that water and, and eventually discharge it? So how does the size and shape of the reserve that you define sort of fit into the overall mine plan? Differences in the, in the geology, um, you may have to incorporate that into what equipment you're using uh, for, for the operation. And once you, once you have developed, you've got your drilling program, and once you've developed a, a basic geologic model, what are the operational expectations of the client? Um, how are they going to, what, what's their process? And really getting them in and also the, uh, the equipment suppliers and uh, manufacturers and their, and their uh, contractors um, working with them to develop a, a mine plan that you know, complements the, the operational plan. So once you've sort of looked at the economics and the reserves and you've sort of defined the permitting and the uh, infrastructure and how you're going to transport the material, um, how do you come up with sort of a, a general uh, reclamation plan for the life of the mine and how are you going to close it at the end? Typically, I, it kind of goes back to what we talked about in the beginning. How does that fit into the, uh, the local landscape? Or, or the, the geographic area. If it's a, uh, a large rural area with a population that uh, may want a, a hunting or a fishing reserve, things like that. If it is a, uh, an industrial area, early ideas about uh, post-end use, where, whether you can cover, if it's an underground mine, can you use it for underground storage? Can you use it for any sort of, any sort of truck storage? And incorporating those ideas uh, early on in even just the planning process, having an end use in mind, not only just for reclamation plan, uh, but also can that be a, an additional source of revenue for the, for the client, for the uh, mine operator, even after the, they've exhausted the reserve? Yeah, I've, I've seen that pretty well. I know out here in the West, you know, they've had, um, they've converted some of these old mine pits um, with the help of uh, Ducks Unlimited you know, creating sort of duck preserves or other people have done redevelopment on top of them. Um, you know, like uh, solar is getting to be big where they're redeveloping these areas because the infrastructure is already there. So there's a lot of options for a mine operator at the end of, of mine life, like you were saying, that there might be sort of, um, you know, additional income streams outside of the mine. Yeah. And to your point, that is 
kind of become a, uh, a bigger picture idea here uh, in the Chicago metro area. Uh, the logistics ports are, are, are huge. And I, I've known of at least one or two projects where they had ideas for a, a logistics port. They just needed the, a good solid way engineering plan to get the, uh, the material out so they could create this infrastructure underground. The other uh, project that comes to mind here around Chicago is the uh, the tarp system. It's essentially they creating using old mines to uh, create reservoirs to redirect stormwater and, and, and treat stormwater. Yeah, that's an amazing project. I'm glad I'm glad you invited me out there to look at it. I mean, it's pretty amazing. If people don't know, they used an old limestone pit to collect uh, stormwater for the city of Chicago during flood events, and I know. You know, a lot of other people, especially with the climate change issue, you're possibly using old um, aggregate pits as a method to handle stormwater for various cities. So you're actually being a benefit for the communities you're in. You're, you have an area where stormwater can go in and not impact, um, you know, houses or buildings or towns. So that's getting to be a, a new thing. Yeah, that was a uh, a neat project to be part of. Uh, knowing the the you know, initial thoughts and engineering for for that started back in the uh, I want to say the '80s, just initial feasibility. And now we've got uh, three uh, online that are connected by I want to say 108 miles of 30 foot diameter tunnels that are running all over the uh, the Chicago metro area. To and it's um, I've seen some relief. Um, when they get the uh, the last one um, fully online and, and engaged, it'll uh, be neat to see uh, how it actually works. It was great talking to you today on issues related to developing a new mine resource. Remember, working safely may get old, but so do those who practice it. Thank you for listening to this episode of CEC Explains, brought to you by Civil and Environmental Consultants. Got a question about this episode or an idea for our next one? Reach out to us at cecinc.com slash podcast. Don't miss an episode of CEC Explains. Subscribe now wherever you find podcasts. Because when CEC Explains, you're always invited to listen.